0: It's a damp old morning in Melbourne town, isn't it? I hope you're rugged up warm and dry somewhere. Or if you are about to head out, make sure, unlike me, you dress for the weather. That means taking a coat, uh, an umbrella. These sensible things that you would think after living in Melbourne since 1986 that I would actually realise that the weather is weather and wet. But no. Oh well. So uh, I'm sitting here with slightly soggy feet in the studio at Triple R, which thankfully is warm. Good morning. Richard Watts with you here, taking you through till midday today. On today's show, we're going to be talking myth... Uh, because the Melbourne International Film Festival is on. Director Brodie Higgs coming in in about 15 minutes to talk about his feature film, Elixir. Uh, then also on the theatre front, we're going to find out about the La Mama production stars of Track and Field. Josephine Ridge, the Artistic Director of Melbourne Festival, will be joining us a little bit later on as well. Josephine launched the program for her third and final Melbourne Festival earlier this week, so she'll be coming in at 10am to chat about that program in detail. Also, we're going to find out about Conversations with the Gods about their deaths and other matters, which is a performance at 45 downstairs. Visual artist Cameron Robbins will be joining me at 11am. Cameron's uh, creating a new public sculpture in Lilydale, which has been commissioned by Creative Victoria. Uh, And Cerise Howard joins us for Fistful of Celluloid at 11.30 this morning. Um, I do believe we will have an art attack segment this morning, but Ace, I don't think, will be able to join us. Uh, So um, I hope Ty is coming in solo. I'm about to text her. Yes, don't you love modern life and just being able to kind of reach out and contact and do stuff very, very quickly like that? Three, triple, R. If you've just landed back in Melbourne from, I don't know, Mars or something, you uh, may be surprised to discover that the Melbourne International Film Festival is on. Everybody else seems to know it. It's uh, inescapable at this time of year, whether you're actually seeing films or whether you're just walking home through the city wondering what dozens and hundreds and thousands of people are doing, queuing up in the rain and the wind and the cold, waiting to get into a a cinema or a building. There's a great range of films to see from international features and documentaries to new Australian films. Uh, The film Elixir is is both international and Australian, uh, and its director, Brody Higgs, joins us in the studio now. Brody, good morning. Thanks, Richard. So, this is a film made about the art scene in Berlin, uh, mm. and it's reflecting on and celebrating surrealism. Uh, it's taking the piss out of people like Malcolm Macla- McLaren, uh, the, the alleged kind of Svengali behind the Sex Pistols. It's a, a rich and complex film, but let's... Take a step back. How did the boy from the eastern suburbs of Sydney end up making a film about Berlin and art and all the kind of crazy shenanigans that go on in artistic shared households?
1: Well, I think that uh, it was actually started from this program. I um, was listening to a book review by Craig Shufton. Um Actually, no, someone's. He 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 wrote a book called The Culture Club. We sort of mapped out the um, the link between you know the modernist and postmodern movements, and and I was at triple. Uh, I was at um, VCA, and I'd walk home through the arts sort of department each day, and that sort of slowly, you know. Um, turned into putting on a um, art residence and um, I thought I knew nothing about art, so I better better read Craig's book, and um, and I sort of thought, oh God, I need to make these people come alive. So they were reincarnated in a in a modern setting, and you know, as Paris was the sort of melting pot of artists in the twenties, and then potentially New York in the sixties for abstract expressionism and Clem Greenberg, and and uh, and that and that movement and then maybe if they were alive where would they be now maybe that's berlin so you know berlin is the sort of congregation of the, of the world a lot of the world's artists over the last couple of years why do you think that different
0: cities become such Cultural hotspots at different times, as you have said, uh, Paris in the in the nineteen kind of in the teens and the twenties was the place to go in the art world. Uh, Berlin, obviously, uh, since reunification in Germany and perhaps even before, was this kind of rich cultural melting pot. But certainly, uh, in the in the noughties and, and early teens, yes, it's become one of the focal points for for European art and culture. Why do do these kind of cities come to life at different times?
1: I think it's just a matter of. Um You know, uh, one in all, in you know, I think it's a bit of a bandwagon. I think it's uh, also um, the cost, you know, and also I think Berlin's always been changing constantly. Every time you go back, it's just a completely new city, and I think it's very affordable. Um, So, you know, part of the whole statement of the film is is going into the kind of gentrification of of cities, you know. Like, um, it's just so hard to find, um, you know, inner city warehouses to do your art. And so these poor surrealists sort of stuck in this modern sort of time that they're just not suited to um, are being kind of kicked out through gentrification and the need to actually earn a living, (laughs) you know, not just sitting at home and, you know, writing poetry. Mm. Now, you've previously made...
0: um uh, a documentary and then a couple of short films. So, this is your debut feature. Um, why on earth did you decide to make your debut feature with a cast of 22
1: people rather than a more manageable three or four? It's the stupidest decision ever. Yeah. Um, I have no idea. Um, I think it was sort of, you know, trying to fit a lot of artists from the, you know, 20, 20th century into one film. And um, look, I, you know, I think. It was okay, you know, I wouldn't do it again, but you know throw myself into the deep end. Well, hopefully no-one would do it again <laughs> in, in terms of
0: uh, why repeat what you've already done if, yeah, if you want to right. kind of push yourself and advance yourself and go somewhere new. But this is obviously, for, for Australian audiences, this must be an in, uh, an intriguing film because, the, I mean, the surrealist artists, the Dada movement and so on, have become quite legendary, the likes have, of yeah. kind of Andre Breton and Tristan Zara and so forth. Yep. So talk to us about the process of create recreating uh, those... Historical characters in a in a contemporary setting for your film.
1: Well, it's I mean I really tried to stay true to their to their real life conflicts. You know I mean Andre was a was a Dadaist before he coined the term surrealism, and Tristan Zara, who started Dada became a surrealist and was kicked out twice. You know, and they always had this this conflict. And um, so I suppose I kind of lended from you know their 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 sort of inner conflicts and. Into conflicts, and then they kind of fight over Nadja, you know, which is uh, a character from Andre Breton's book, Naja, And um, and then they kind of come through and meet Clem Greenberg. And so, and then with Ma- Clem Greenberg inevitably comes Malcolm, which is a ripoff of Dada. And, um, you know, anti-music, music, you know. Um, so, you know, it's sort of really mapping, I suppose, history and sort of gleaning from anecdotes that I've researched um, and pulling them together in a, in an art residence in Berlin and in the kind of surrounding areas of, of um, the Berlin sort of scene. And how did you go about casting the, uh, the film? I, I've heard that mm. uh, you even kind of what, put out a public call on Facebook, which somebody answered, as well as then casting other people you knew. Yeah, I had sort of like online audition process, you know, and I found Clem, Clem through that, which was good. He was the you have to kiss a lot of toads to find a prince and he was he was certainly a prince. Um and uh but I had a I had to cast from I think eight countries, you know, and I think Andre Andre was French, Andre's French. Um and uh, his English was pretty terrible, so we had a language coach for him, and I had a translator because to direct. <laughs> and Tristan Zara is Polish, and uh, he spoke zero English. So I think he did pretty well, but considering he was just so focused on, on speaking English for the, his lines, and which is a shame because he's such a good actor, um, he couldn't really improvise. But he, he, he it suited his character. He's he's kind of plays a bit of an asshole, and you know, <laughs> you haven't made yourself. This- so was anything easy for yourself, Brody? making <laughs> this film, have you? No, Neither for right. you nor the cast. No, everyone loved I mean, it was good. It was it was a real melting pot, like kind of sort of symbi- um, symbolic of, of Berlin, you know? I mean, English is the kind of, you know, common thread um, because there's just so many different nationalities and, and people. So, you know, I think everyone really loved the kind of this real-life art residence that was the, was the set, and we kind of got in there two months before... And, um, you know, I think I had, you know, uh, 20... but I think it was thirty artists um, that I kind of found in Berlin contributing. Because you know, we're trying to create a, a fifteen year art residence, so we needed a lot of clutter, you know. A lot and, of clutter, a lot of layering, a lot of very yeah. different looks as well. Yeah, and a lot of, you know, memory. Um, so I think that Andre it's sort of like a nostalgia and sort of trying to cut loose from the past. So, you know, Andre just wanted to flick a match to this place, you know, symbolically, you know. Sort of cutting, cutting the past. And, um, so there had to be a lot of you know memory and stuff in there mm. did you employ a production designer to look yeah. after that yeah 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 I mean, it was a mixture of a uh, production designer really great guy sebastian sukop um and uh, and all the artists of course and we had this wonderful contribution from a couple of like david noonan and John Stazaka and some well-known artists that really were generous in lending their in lending their works to us oh they were all replicas, <laughs> of course. but yeah. Uh,
0: the film we're talking about is Elixir, directed by Brodie Higgs who's my guest in the studio. It uh, uh, screened at MIF last night and is screening again uh, this Friday, the 7th of August, 9pm at the Kino. If you're intrigued, you can book uh, and get more details at mif.com.au. Uh, tell us a little bit about kind of writing the film and how long it, it's actually been in development because anybody who's not a writer knows that you have to go through multiple drafts to mm. condense and focus and 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 par down ideas to get to what you want. Tell us about the writing. How challenging was it? How quickly did your structure and your story begin to come together?
1: Well, it was an interesting process because, I mean, you're really trying to find a lot of research. It's probably not the best way to do it. You know, you can't sort of find the story and the three-act structure and, you know, the characters' sort of conflict and arc if you're kind of trying to pay homage to a whole bunch of people over 100 years. (laughs) I mean, it was kind of a different process and I had kind of like a script editor, a guy called Manuel Bordio, which is, uh, I think he wrote A Christmas Tale. Um, So I'd be back and forth to Paris and he was um, a good, great help. And, of course, Anya, my partner, um, creative partner, she was there from day one. So lots of, yeah, I mean, it was just like a really, I mean, a first film, so it was obviously going to be a lot longer than, (laughs) than a more efficient, you know. Second time round, hopefully.
0: Yeah. Uh, and look, just as a final question, as we said, it screened at MIF last night and it yep. is screening again on Friday.
1: Tell yep. us about the audience's response last night. It was, I was warmed, it was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, it was good. Uh, well, did you do a Q and a afterwards? Or? I did, yeah. And did anybody ask the fatal question, where do you get your ideas? No, but they said, uh, why is it called Elixir? Which I was, um, you know, but where do I get my fatal ideas? Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> From <laughs> many books, uh, as I said,
0: you can catch Brodie Higgs' debut feature film, Elixir, uh, tomorrow night, nine pm at the Kino. Uh, more information at miff.com.au. Brody, thanks for coming in. My pleasure,
2: Vision. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone.
0: Stars of Track and Field is the name of a new production, uh, a new Australian play that's on at La Mama Theatre. Uh, and as always, when talking about La Mama, a brief conflict of interest statement: I am am a member of the committee of management at La Mama. I I do not benefit financially from my involvement with the theatre. Uh, I do benefit artistically, though, because I get to go and see a huge range of new Australian works every year. I think at least 35 or more new Australian productions every year are staged at La Mama. Stars of Track and Field is a new Australian play by um, Amanda Miha, directed by La Mama artist-in-residence Darren Weiser, who joins us in the studio now. Darren, hello. Good morning. Uh, And uh, we also have cast member Christina Benton joining us as well. Christina, hello.
3: Hello.
0: So, um, Stars of Track and Field, this is a a story exploring, it's a semi-autobiographical piece about adolescence, about uh, living in in a uh, a Greek-Australian family, I understand.
2: That's correct, absolutely, yes. And along with that, uh, all the the troubles and struggles that one goes when uh, a family are dealing with a multiple array of issues, um, very complex. Um, Christina can tell you more about her character and what she has to deal with. Mm. Please do.
4: Well, um, I play Faye, who is a uh, once star of track and field, who uh, has a tragic car accident and uh, is no longer able to run anymore and the consequences thereof
0: both physical and mental yes yeah um that challenge of um having a in some sense a dream snatched away Mm. uh, is one of the things that's being explored and the ramifications of mental health on not just an individual
2: but a family yes yeah
0: um darren it doesn 't necessarily seem like a, a light subject
2: to direct. no it 's not a <laughs> light subject, but we are finding the humor in the play there 's always humor in, in, in everything and that 's what we 've kind of been i stri- 've been striving striving to find behind you know the subtext and yes it 's like really difficult i mean i 've had first hand experience with some depression uh, and i 'm sure many people have so I kind of can relate to Faye's character and also understand what the other, other characters uh, dealing with her children, uh, 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 Bianca and uh, Peter <laughs> and also um, the husband George as well. He's kind of like, um, well, he kind of really is avoiding the issue really in many ways. Mm-hmm. Hmm. now um in terms of uh staging a work like this
0: christina you as an actor one of the challenges i imagine is that this is a semi-autobiographical piece of theater Mm. from the writer so does that require an extra degree of sensitivity from you as an actor when when taking on a work like this
4: probably should um (laughs) i um that i relate with to the character in in a myriad of ways um and it didn't actually occur to me until halfway through the rehearsal process that it was actually autobiographical. Um, but, um, I, yeah, I think I think that you need a, a, a degree of sensitivity no matter what role you take on, because it's, whether it's based on someone who exists or whether it's from someone's mind, it still inhabits a personality for that time that you're playing it. And... Any actor worth their salt is going to try and find the most authentic, sympathetic way in order to play characters, no matter how difficult they are. Um, I see all my characters as being essentially human beings, so... I try and play them as humanly as possible.
0: And in this instance, you're playing a character who's dealing with chronic pain as Mm. well. Mm. Um, Did that mean that you then went out to do some additional interviews to talk to people who uh, have experienced that sort of constant pain and condition, for example, to help you ground the character more? Uh,
4: My mother suffered from constant chronic pain for the last probably 10 years of her life. So... um that's, that's very much ingrained in my personality, being aware of that. I also have back problems that I've had for a long time, so I can, I can relate. I mean, it's, there, there definitely is um, value to going out and interviewing. I, I tend to be very empathetic and intuitive in the way that I approach a character. Um, so for me, it's just like, okay, you're in pain. You know what pain feels like. Imagine that's constant um, and, that, and that gets me there pretty
0: easily. I would imagine, though, that embodying yeah. that physically, perhaps, might be a challenge, but Darren, that's where your Masters of Choreography from the VCA, I'm yeah. sure, comes in handy, kind of like, looking at how a, a character who has been broken in a car accident is in pain, how that somebody moves and carries themselves on stage.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We, um, I took into a, a few tricks into the studio for Christina particularly, and yes, I, coming from a choreographic background, it for me, it does take form in the physical shape. It's kind of like getting the shell of something, possibly like a crab and then or or a crab and then filling the 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 insides with meat the kind of the visceral kind of stuff which makes the character deeper we also i also brought in a little trick um for christina to um uh help her with those adjustments which i won't give away on air because that would be kind of undermining our whole whole process (laughs) but we did we i did have a couple other tricks up my sleeve to help um her physically, plus also with, with Christina's experience, it was quite, I won't say easy, but it was, it, it was certainly, a, uh, we were able to find that rel- re- relatively um, in a fluid way those physical adjustments so that you could see her in pain and actually feel her in pain and then also that correlating to her children because her children also have to deal with this and the husband has to also deal with this, this woman who's in a lot of pain, she's mentally unwell and suffers depression and um, is suicidal as well. That's it's quite deep. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> quite a, a lot to pack into
0: kind of one production. Mm. And then the added issue that it's set in the 90s, so it's a period piece as well. Yeah. Uh, and what I find fascinating is often when we think about stories about adolescents and, and Greek-Australian families, the focus is firmly on the adolescents, on the, the, the perhaps the second-generation child and their struggles within the confines of, of a traditional family. But it, it seems like here, Christina, the focus is very much on your character, the, the, mm. the older uh, character in the family
4: mm the Australian in the family <laughs> yeah um I, because I think i mean a, again, coming from a a background a broken family with we had with many issues growing up, but it, it's the, the the parent with the problem has an effect on the rest of the of the family um, and I think how do I put this delicately um I think that parents have a lot of responsibility to make sure that their own personal crap doesn't infect their children and I think this is a this is a play that very definitely shows how it badly it can affect children.
2: Yeah. And, and what you see also too is is the chil- that uh, Peter character, for example, he's one of the few characters in the play that actually, in a way, is more sensible than mm. any uh, out of all the characters. Even though he doesn't behave sensibly, he still actually probably has more perspective than all of the other characters because of what they, they're all dealing mm. with. So that kind of adds another layering to to. The work mm. Now, uh, Stars of Track and Field is on in La Mama Theatre, which is such a, a,
0: a magnificently intimate space, which can be a gift to performers and, and directors or it can be a challenge as well, given that uh, the the confine of the space means that any overacting is immediately visible. Darren, as a director working within that space, you are the
2: artist-in-residence. You yeah. clearly know it well. It's a gift. Oh, my God, <laughs> that space is just like gold. You, yeah. can, you could not ask for... Um, I mean, I've been in... Or, all capital cities around Australia pretty much and you could not ask for a better venue, a more supportive venue. And the intimacy of the venue is uh, exactly what you said. You don't need to overact. Mm. You can often... It, going in there and just sharing a story is... Which often was a process I approached with Christina's work when getting the character Fay out was actually just sharing the story and the text. And in a space like A Mama, when you share the text and the story in that intimate surrounding, it's often just enough... So they're, 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 uh, they're, there's, uh, it's enough for the audience to get. One thing you do have to be careful is like, you know, strong, we, everyone's such a strong actor in the play that we have had to, you know, in pull a way, back pull something. back exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, especially with Stefania, I to um, <laughs> who is playing Bianca, she's a very strong, boisterous um character, beautiful, beautiful actress. And we had to say, sort of, okay, let's rein her in a little bit. It's a 35 seat theater, yeah. so let's kind of you know, pull everything back.
0: Yeah, it's not the Sumner, so who uh, <laughs> no, you're, yes. you're not kind of mm. acting for somebody who's sitting kind of X many, kind of well, I, I don't know how large that I'm trying to mentally imagine how many metres the back row of the Sumner Theatre at the MTC is from the stage. But, yeah, Mm -hmm. in La Mama, it's about two metres, if that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you... uh, This is not to do with the production at all, but do you believe La Mama is haunted?
4: Yes. (laughs)
2: I've heard this. I haven't seen any haunted people around, but it certainly has a lot of history. I wouldn't be surprised if it's haunted. Certainly, I remember being there late one night for a a rehearsal of a spoken word show and hearing somebody walking around
0: upstairs and there was no one else in the building. Mm -hmm. Yes, so that could have been the building settling, but it did sound like footsteps. And the rumour is that there is a La Mama ghost.
4: Look, I've I've been in a lot of theatres in my time since I was a kid and just about everyone has some kind of visitant I suppose you could say I'm a firm believer that the good theatre has to have a ghost well,
0: it, it, a, a ghost and a cat seem to be the, yeah. the, the prerequisites yeah. for a good theatre yeah. Or a
4: ghost cat just combine the <laughs> two. <laughs> Stars
0: of Track and Field is on at La Mama Theatre in Carlton uh, 205 Faraday Street if you've not been there before, if you've not been there before I am aghast and shocked it is a Melbourne icon, everybody should see at least one La Mama show in their life ideally plenty more, uh, mama.com.au is the website if you would like to book you can also call 9347 6142 if you would like to book for Stars of Track and Field which is on until the 9th of August, 6.30pm on Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays at 7.30pm and Sundays the civilised afternoon time of 4pm so you can see a show, go out for coffee and then dinner afterwards and still get home early for work the next day. Uh, I've been talking to Director Darren Weiser and cast member Christina Benton. Thank you both very much for joining us here at Triple Up. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Three, Triple, R. Oh. I'm joined in the studio for what may be, sadly, the last time for a little while. Josephine Ridge is the Artistic Director of Melbourne Festival uh, and has just launched her third and final program for the festival. So our annual catch-ups, oh, I'm feeling rather sad already, but lots to look forward to already, Josephine.
3: There is. There certainly is, Richard. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, We might get another chat in before the end of October, do you think?
0: I think we can try and squeeze that in, definitely. So... Uh, this is not only your third festival, but it is the 30th anniversary of Melbourne Festival, which is a tremendous landmark for any cultural institution, particularly one which has had such an influence on the city that it is a part of and for over those three decades.
3: Uh, it, it certainly is. And I think it, it's fantastic the way that Melbourne Festival has kept developing and changing over that time. Uh, I was interesting listening to one of your earlier guests uh, today um, about um, the, the uh, Berlin becoming such a, a, a sort of hotspot at the moment for the arts and the way that cities are cyclical. And uh, I think, you know, at the moment, Melbourne has absolutely hit its straps uh, and it's, it's fantastically exciting to be artistic director of Melbourne Festival at that time.
0: Now, any festival obviously has to be both of and for its city and strike an interesting balance between uh, bringing work to the city that can't be otherwise seen in that particular city, but also reflecting the culture of the city it is part of. Tell us about that juggling act in your role.
3: Look, it's actually less, less of a juggling act, I think, and more of a connecting act, um, because that's what we can do. We can actually create um, platforms and, and contexts for local artists to have their work seen within an international context, to see it alongside the work of international artists and to create opportunities for not just audience. But artists as well to, uh, to, to learn from each other, to meet, to exchange ideas. Um, and I think that's one of the really exciting things about an international arts festival um, is that uh, it is about connecting and about creating that, that broader sort of local international context. What
0: kind of influence do you think Melbourne Festival has had on Melbourne, the city, uh, culturally and artistically over its 30-year uh, history?
3: Oh, look, I think we have we have introduced, without any doubt, we've introduced an amazing number of extraordinary artists from around the world that, uh, that Melbourne audiences would not have been able to see before, partly because of just the way that a festival is structured. Um, you know, we can do things that uh, a producer who was just bringing out one single work um, would not do unless, of course, they want to lose their house. Um, so, um, but we've got a whole program to, you know, to, to balance those sorts of activities with. So, uh, you know, there are artists, you know, for example, the Nature Theatre of Oklahoma that we um, brought in, in 2013, you know, an extraordinary company, um, only a festival could really consider um, doing something of that uh, Uh, marathon nature. And also
0: of that magnitude as well, because that was a large cast uh, on stage and a large number of works being presented. Yeah,
3: it it absolutely was. And I think in every festival program, there are examples of that. Uh, Last year, you know, the in-depth retrospective of of Tricia Brown's work, uh, which, uh, you know, again, you know, someone could bring one of her works out here but to actually have that really, really broad context and I think this year you see it with, uh, well in a number of ways but New York Narratives is is one uh, where we're really taking a close look at the independent theatre sector, a really really vital uh, part of Melbourne's ecology and, uh, and and we're looking at that again within an international context um, and, and looking at New York uh, an extraordinary home for independent artists and and, uh, and and Melbourne equally so, and I mean the
0: synergies between those cities are, are many and varied. And the one that immediately springs to mind for me is, of course, that it was visiting New York and seeing La Mama Theatre that then create uh, led to the creation of La Mama in Melbourne, which has become such a an important part of the independent theatre sector here.
3: Exactly as you were just talking about with the yeah. earlier guests. Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: so that the synergy between those cities. Uh, how will you be exploring that within the the Melbourne Festival program?
3: Uh, well, first of all, by presenting two really amazing artists from New York who are out of the PS One Two Two stable, so the, the New York Narratives program is a is a collaboration between us, uh, PS122, which has for over 30 years been uh, producing and presenting um, really seminal artists on the New York scene uh, and Arts House um, that is also celebrating an anniversary this year. It's their 10th anniversary uh, and has been so important to the independent sector here in, in Melbourne. So we're bringing two artists, Okwio uh and Andrew Schneider from New York who are um, stable um, artists of PS122. These are works that PS122 commissioned. Um, And uh, they form the sort of the the platform, if you like. And uh, from there we are um, presenting other works, another work by Andrew Schneider, which is a film work, really fascinating exercise. and, uh, especially made for Melbourne. Um, and, uh, and then there's a whole range of forums, of films, uh, discussions and opportunities to bring the artists with whom we're working, the Melbourne artists, into that room with New York artists. Um, there are conversations, for example, with Anne, um, Anne from the New York Lincoln Centre, who is the director of the Theatre Lab, um, there that uh, we have now a satellite in Melbourne thanks to Dan Clark at, uh, at Theatre Works. Um, Anne and Valeo gantner from PS122 are going to do a sort of uptown-downtown New York conversation um, but there are many opportunities within this roughly goes over about a 10 day period for local independent uh, artists to be drawn into that whole conversation and that debate and we also have within um, the uh, independent theatre program and dance program and music program, I think some of the best emerging artists um, like Anthony Hamilton, Adina Jacobs uh, and uh, Speak Percussion, uh, David Chisholm, uh, extraordinary range of talent that we have here in Melbourne. So rope. Put a rope, big rope all around all of that. (laughs) Now, uh, one
0: of the other things that's intriguing about this year's Melbourne Festival, and you've mentioned kind of the idea of conversations already, but that's certainly a really strong thread in the programming this year is a greater opportunity for for in-depth discussion and conversation and engagement with work. So it's not just about... uh, presenting work, whether work the festival has commissioned or work that you're bringing in from overseas. It's about presenting the work and then offering multiple avenues and multiple pathways for for people to engage with that work on a deeper and more lasting level through a series of forums and discussions and conversations throughout the Mm -hmm. festival.
3: And that, again, is something that I think a festival can really do and it's something that Melbourne Festival uh, is, uh, I, I, I think particularly able to do because of the nature of Melbourne audiences hungry to find avenues to participate in discussion and ideas and we see that uh, you know, throughout the year in many ways. The Wheeler Centre almost every night at 6 o'clock packed with people just going to, to listen and talk and, and participate. Um, so uh, 1984 is a really good example you know we're bringing this extraordinary production from the UK by Headlong Uh, It is uh, exhilarating, compelling and chilling theatre, amazingly topical um, reading of George Orwell's book and gives us... Really fertile ground to explore the themes of surveillance, of, of privacy, um, notions of power, control, use of language, uh, and rewriting of history. Uh, and uh, we are doing so much with that from a relay reading with uh, an extraordinary range of um, politicians and ex-politicians and satirists and some general public as well uh, in the uh, in Parliament House in the Legislative Assembly. We were going to read the whole book over a day, uh, and uh, but there are uh, there's a series of films at Acme. Um, the Wheeler Centre are partnering with us in that in that relay reading, by the way, and uh, and then there are a whole lot of discussions and forums, uh, including uh, with Liquid Architecture, amazing sound art festival, really provocative crew, and uh, and the University of Melbourne. Uh, so it, it, really rich, rich ground.
0: Now, one of the other things that intrigues me about this year's Melbourne Festival program, Josephine, I have to say, is that um, you're not um, shy about sharing the spotlight with your predecessors. I think in, sometimes artistic directors seem to want to go, this is my festival, let's that's just, it's mine, and step in a spotlight. But you've invited three previous artistic directors, to participate in the festival this year in a way of celebrating and acknowledging that 30-year history that is being commemorated this year.
3: And I think that's the appropriate thing to do, basically. Uh, We we are custodians, we're guardians of something which is much bigger than us. Uh, the Melbourne Festival was under all of its names here over the last 30 years and uh, and will continue to be here, obviously, for a very long time. Um, and uh, the the 30-year forums, which uh, Jonathan Mills-Bretschie and Robin Archer will each be leading a discussion on different aspects of Melbourne Festival, dealing with our relationship to the city, Festival of Melbourne, uh, dealing with our... Um, position as an international festival and also as an arts festival not just navel gazing and looking at what we have done and what we might do but also looking at melbourne and what's happened in this city over that time how we've responded to that how we might have reflected that and uh, and i hope that there'll be a little bit of crystal ball gazing as well into the future Uh, Predicting the future
0: is always tricky, but as George Orwell has shown us, it's uh, sometimes dangerously prescient as Mm. well. Um, Let's talk about uh, some of the major Australian commissions that are being presented as part of the festival this year. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with the arts industry, there is this festival body, essentially, that uh, that uh, all the representatives of the major festivals around the country get to sit or, and work out what they're going to commission and share between them, which means larger works can be dreamed up and presented. And you've got a number of such works in the festival program this year.
3: We do, and I'm really proud to say that three of them are... are works for young people. It's so important to be able to uh, present quality work for our uh, audiences of, of younger ages uh, and hopefully instilling in them at an early age a real love of uh, performing arts. Um, there are three works. Uh, one is The Rabbits, uh, which was uh, is an adaptation. There's a big adaptation of literature theme going through this year's festival, by the way. Um, but that is a, an adaptation of a book by John. Marsden, and uh, with illustrations by Sean Tan, that uh, Kate Miller-Heitke, who is an extraordinary star of of music, has written her first opera. Uh, Lally Katz, wonderful, wonderful writer, uh, have created together this uh, opera for young people called The Rabbits. Um, and uh, we also have Masquerade again, another adaptation. Kate Mulvaney, uh, so loved as a person of our of our stage, uh, has revealed herself to be a really exquisite writer uh, in her adaptation of Kit Williams' book Masquerade. And finally, we have uh, Kim Carpenter and Theatre of Image, and they'll be at the Geelong Performing Arts Centre um, with a, an interpretation of just a handful of I think about a thousand there are in total, but just a handful of the Chinese stories Monkey Journey to the West with more than a nod to the uh, Japanese cult TV series.
0: Which I grew up watching in the uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, so uh, I think a, a trek down to Geelong is going to be in order as well. Um, obviously, there's many other elements of the festival program. There's contemporary music, there's classical music. Um, let's talk a little bit, though, about the dance component of the festival. You've already mentioned Anthony Hamilton, uh, but uh, about Shiva Dance Company... Uh, being featured prominently this year
3: they are and this will be their third visit to Melbourne Uh, 8 years ago they were here and then 8 years before that Uh, so it's sort of nicely spaced Um, I think it is a good thing for Melbourne Festival to not just think about introducing audiences to artists they may not have heard of I think it's also a wonderful opportunity for us to be able to um, provide a way for audiences to develop an understanding and and a deeper appreciation of the development of an artist's work and Ohad Naharan, the artistic director of Batsheva, is without any doubt one of the most extraordinary choreographers. His company are a company of elite athletes. They are the most beautiful company on stage. Uh, We will be presenting a work called Decadance, which is a like a survey, the best of his best, uh, which he has turned into a full evening length work uh, and alongside that a work called Last Work which has just premiered in Tel Aviv in June where I saw it and uh, has come from the European festival circuit just recently, where it was a huge success, particularly in Montpellier, the uh, sort of mecca of dance festivals in Europe. Um, So it's uh, two works from uh, Batsheva, large-scale works. We're in the State Theatre at the Arts Centre, to give you a sense of that scale.
0: Uh, You've also got a work by a company I confess I'm not familiar with, but I'm certainly intrigued the more I learn about them, Peeping Tom from Belgium. Uh, And, I mean, we've seen uh, quite a few works from Belgium, particularly Perhaps since Levin Bertels became uh, artistic director of Sydney Festival, he's brought out a, a few of his countrymen. But yeah. um, there's obviously a, a lot of interesting work going on in the low countries of Europe. Tell us a little bit about the company Peeping Tom and the work that they're bringing out, that uh, you're bringing out of theirs for yeah. the festival. Uh,
3: Belgium is incredible, as you say. And uh, you were playing some music from Iceland before. There's something in the water when it comes to music in Iceland, there is something in the water in Belgium when it comes to dance and physical theatre. Um, this company, Peeping Tom is one of the best of the Belgian companies. Um, their work is, uh, is very, very powerful. This uh, piece called 32 Rue Vandenbranden uh, gives us a sort of snapshot of a fairly dysfunctional. Group of people who are inhabiting quite a bleak sort of uh, trailer park, and uh, you get to understand their lives and how they interact with each other. Um, the work is highly theatrical. It's obviously very physical, being dance, um, and music is very, very powerful and strong throughout the the piece. Um, and uh, I think it's uh, it's a it's a wonderful example of uh, the sort of lack of bound between theatre and, and dance sometimes that you find in the best of the contemporary work. Uh, some audiences might remember uh, an earlier piece of theirs called Le Salon, which was here in 2009 in one of Bret festivals. Uh, and uh, anybody who saw that, I think, will be rushing to uh, to see this work as well. If you've just
0: tuned in, we're speaking with Josephine Ridge, the Artistic Director of Melbourne Festival, uh, about her third and final festival program, uh, which was launched earlier in the week at Government House. Um, I didn't get along. I was stuck at work, but uh, I saw lots of photos on Facebook. It looked fun. Um, the festival itself running from the 8th to the 25th of October. Uh, Josephine, just before you go, let's talk about the visual art program as well. Um, one of the things that uh, a festival can do is unite different aspects of the city and find different partners to work together with to present a rich and diverse cultural program. The visual arts program is no different. Partners such as Tarawara, Centre for Contemporary Photography and more, enabling you to draw upon so many additional resources. Talk to us briefly about some of the, the highlights in the visual arts program. Uh,
3: I think, well, you've, you've just men- mentioned a couple of our partners. Uh, another is uh, ACCA, uh, with whom I think almost every year of the festival since ACCA's been there, we have um, we've, we've, uh, presented something in collaboration with them. Uh, a Swedish uh, creative team, Natalie Gerberg and Hans Berg. Uh, Hans is music and Natalie is uh, pictures, objects, digital work, claymation films. Uh, they're an extraordinary uh, double act uh, their work has not been seen uh, here in Australia, uh, at least not within any any you know large um, exhibition. Their work will be inhabiting the whole of, of ACCA. This year, it's similar to several of the other exhibitions in that there's a big music theme running through the visual arts uh, this year, which uh, I'm really excited about. And uh, you'll be able to enjoy music both uh, there at uh, the Monash University Museum of Art, um, uh, Tarawara, uh, where there's a special curated festival day. Uh, Liquid Architecture, I mentioned before, are also creating a program out there for us.
0: Lots to see at this year's Melbourne Festival. Uh, Tickets are already on sale uh, and I'm sure some shows will sell out quickly. So make sure you jump online, melbournefestival.com.au to browse the program and book tickets or pick up a copy of the brochure from around town. Uh, It's unmissably uh, yellow and pink uh, and uh, there's a... Let's just say, is it a hare? Is it a rabbit? Is it Why is it wearing a suit? Uh, browse the program and you may start to see the connecting threads that explain why. Josephine Ridge, always a pleasure. Thank you, Richard. Uh, we'll uh, hopefully catch you again before, well, certainly before the year is out and a little bit closer to the festival in October. Look forward to it. 3 Triple R. James McHackie joins me on the line now to talk to us about conversations with the gods about their deaths and other matters in which uh, gods uh, from a range of pantheons, Greek, Christian, Hindu and others come together to talk. James, good morning. How are you?
5: I wish you very well. Thank you. Now,
0: tell us a little bit about this work. I mean, the, the idea of conversing with what <laughs> some people will see as sacred figures, others will see as completely imaginary figures. <laughs>
5: Yes, well, it's been a process of surprise and discovery for me, Richard. Um, um, I mean, I uh, I started off where uh, perhaps a lot of us do, thinking about you know where were the gods at their terrible moments of human suffering and desertion, and that is something that maybe many of us have thought about, notably you know with the Holocaust or something like that. But then I you know I found that um, the more I wrote in the first instance um, about them, the more. fun it became. I found them enormously entertaining um, to talk to as well as sometimes challenging but I sometimes think that um, you know the sense of humor of the gods is underrated and then really the whole work just took a new dimension When somebody suggested to me that this really was the materials for performance, which is how I hadn't started it, because the moment um, you take that process of talking to them into performance, uh, to use your word, um, you are... Imagining them, you're conjuring them up. They are an imaginary presence, um, uh, as you know, all figures in the theatre are, and uh, and then that unleashes, you know, extraordinary things into the theatre. It's quite challenging for me, but it, it's it's also um, it can be very amusing, at least to me. Um, uh, and uh, so the conversation just kind of kept extending out uh, beyond its starting point
0: which is one of the magical things about the imagination and it makes me uh, realise of course why the ancient Greeks decided that there were muses who were responsible for inspiring artists because the act of imagining is itself uh, it it, it is a magical experience it's almost supernatural the way that you can sometimes look back at words you've written and almost have no memory of, of
5: writing them That's wonderful that's wonderful. I think that's just terrific. You know? uh, I hope I could in some small way live up to that. But I hadn't actually thought of that connection through with the muses, even though, of course, I know about them. And so that's so, a so lovely thought, Richard. Mm-hmm. So
0: which gods are you conversing with in this series uh, well, of, of conversations?
5: You know, I, I used to be a, a classicist teaching Latin and Greek from my, uh, many, many, many years ago. And my ill or well-spent, past off, it was pretty good fun then. So, I mean, the Greek gods are always, for me, a starting point, and of course they give us so many myths that are still with us, don't, don't they? You know, the, we, I think, probably all know a little bit about the fall of Troy, certainly about Oedipus and so on. So I start from them, but you know, that takes you pretty quickly into the Tyrone realm of many gods, because, I mean, one of the reasons why the Christian Church eventually banished the Greek gods was because there were too many of them This proved they weren't real gods. But of course, there are many, many, many gods around the world and in different cultures, aren't they? Whether in you know Bali or in Myanmar, and we, I think, in Australia, uh, we white people in Australia, are just, I think, many of us anyway, slowly coming to terms with some fragmentary knowledge of the indigenous gods and trying to take them really seriously, and through that, understand something about the culture that we have displaced and damaged.
0: Now, you're presenting these works over in two separate programs. Yes. So, uh, on August the 12th, the 14th and the 16th, at yes. 45 downstairs, there are two conversations and then uh, the 13th, 15th and 16th, uh, three conversations presenting these works. <laughs> yeah. And one of those, which really intrigues me, the gods attend a counselling session about loss of
6: identity. Well, there's a
5: from, you know, one day that I, I heard somebody talking with great vehemence about how the gods are all now part of the oneness and, uh, you know, that when you that you pray to the oneness to them and I thought that, that all sounds very nice and then I thought, well you know, how do the gods feel about that, you know uh, aren't they losing a bit of their identity and should I really feel enthusiastic about this? So uh, the gods have got a whiff of this and they come clouding in and it's a bit alarming to me because whom am I to counsel them, but they seek counselling and, uh, and it's an account that I progressively lose control of, Richard. <laughs> in fact, this happens quite, in almost all of them, if I could explain, actually. There are, there are, as you say, there are five conversations. I do them over two nights, and people can either come to both or to one evening if they wish. And then on the last Sunday, I do all of them, giving people a bit of a break in between. But as, as things go on, I get less and less in control of the situation, which um, is probably uh, connects to reality, but uh, uh, I'm sure gives the gods some satisfaction. <laughs>
0: the idea of gods mm-hmm. even needing satisfaction is something that, that
5: again, <laughs> it, it
0: harkens back to the to the idea of Greek myth in which the gods were essentially just people, larger than life people with all the yes. appetites and needs of of people as well, as opposed to the the somehow more abstract, higher yes. than people uh, notion of gods, which is perhaps a more modern way of seeing a deity. That's,
5: that's a wonderful way of putting it, and of course the Greeks have, you know, got into a great deal of trouble for that down the years. The nineteenth century. Germany Germans used to really take, you know, Homer, the great Greek poet from which all this starts, to task because, you know, these gods were comic, and uh, coming from a good German Lutheran tradition, if they were comic, they couldn't be gods. Who says? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I must admit, I find the idea of God's a little comic, uh, but uh, that's, that's just, it's just the atheist in me coming out. Uh, we're talking to James McCackey about his work, Conversations with the Gods About Their Deaths and Other Matters, which he's written and is performing at 45 Downstairs um, uh, between the 12th and the 16th of August, and you can find out more information at 45downstairs.com. James, while I've got you on the line, uh, why return to performance now at this point in your career? You've been better known perhaps as a director, as a, as a mentor for other writers yeah. and, and encouraging other people, students or otherwise, to present their work. Um, did you feel you were kind of missing out on something by not performing uh, yourself?
5: Thank you very much for that question. It's been uh, when I, you know, I had to ask myself. Um, no, I didn't sort of decide to come back in fact i didn't really think of myself as a performer it was uh, many many years since i had last worked as an actor it was that this as this body of material grew as i was writing myself into it and imagining myself into it um it it actually suggests it, it invited performance and so i had to take this tremendous journey back after 40 years as to rediscover myself as a performer and some of what that man was quite technical, you know, uh, doing all the things I've asked actors to do. You know, really activate their resonators, really work my voice, really think what it is to be a performer. So it's been actually a terrific challenge as well as fun, and it's been just a, a huge, wonderful accident that life has given me at this uh, at this stage.
0: Well, I look forward to seeing conversations with the gods about their deaths and other matters, and James, I look forward to seeing you perform. So th- oh, well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining and us on the line. Lovely. As I said, you can catch Conversations with the Gods about their deaths and other matters at 45 Downstairs, 45 Flinders Lane, from the 12th to the 16th of August. You can book on 9662 9996 or online at 45Downstairs.com.
2: Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone.
0: The artist Cameron Robbins joins me in the studio now. Cameron, good morning. Good morning, Richard. Now, you've uh, received a, a rather lovely commission to create a new public work uh, in Lilydale at the uh, Yarra Ranges Regional Museum. Um, tell us about. How you feel about public art to begin with before we go any further?
6: Well well that's well, we've only got half an hour so I'm not <laughs> sure I can cover all my feelings um, yeah well it's a very big topic Richard it's hard to know where to start with that that question actually um, you know like I always see 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 my work as a response to sight. And so I guess, you know, the whole moniker of public art, even though I have taught at RMIT Public Art Unit, um, I see as, you know, if the site and the context fits, you can create a work that has... All the, you know, meanings and feelings of a genuine artwork that you would create in other situations. And that's kind of my goal. And I guess I feel like as I'm moving along uh, in my years and and working life, um, I seem to be able to be getting a bit closer to, you know, doing what I feel is the best thing for that context.
0: How do you feel the public respond to public art? Because I know that there are always some people who go, well, why is my council spending money on this? Why is the state government wasting money on that? And other people who really enjoy the, the way that a random encounter with a public artwork can break them out of the mundane for just a moment and change the way they look at the city, even if only temporarily.
6: Yes, well, I would hope people are open to that experience. And I, I think with my work, um, I've really focused on that, sort of line that's between the um, everyday and the expected and the unexpected and the totally creative and out there. And um, I I think, um, you know, with my kinetic works that use wind and create a drawing and some movement, um, people notice the movement and then they look at the mechanism and then they start to think about the other layers uh, of that work that um, are within the design of the work and uh, the work makes its own meaning as it progresses and um, see, I'm doing some things now that are more time-based over longer periods of time and so that grows on people and I think it's great doing something in a museum context because you're sort of halfway there in terms of, like, it's not like doing something in a roundabout which can be more, you know... um, uh, more like a, like a, well, a more, more difficult. something public. like that
0: is, is ephemeral in some ways on a roundabout because they're literally just driving. Yeah, past they're
6: it. driving through, but you also like you know half the people aren't going to know anything about art, or some people might not like it, or you know at all. Um, but in a museum, it's kind of a very nice context. Um, this piece I'm making does have an outside piece and an inside piece, so hopefully it, um, it draws people in, you know, on various levels. As it draws itself as well. The work is called Milk Culture.
0: Um, uh, and has been described as a windmill for art and culture. So it, uh, and as you say, uh, an outdoor element which people will watch and turn, and then an indoor element which I imagine is the drawing that it will create.
6: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, look, it is a complex work. It was, it was interesting actually with this, you know, the conception of this piece. Um, when I started working in the museum um, as, you know, um, as an invited artist to come up with a response, you know, I realised I couldn't actually draw the piece. It was too complicated, like, the way it worked with the space. And so I've got one piece outside, which is a large um, three-metre diameter wind turbine that I've created. I've actually designed and built that. Uh, That's in my studio at the moment. And then that's going to be connected um, to a second axle that penetrates two windows into the actual museum spaces and has various parts moving inside. So it really does connect the outdoors. With the indoors, and as I called it, mill culture, because I started thinking that that the museum, there's a few threads there that I find is kind of important to talk about. Um, the, I saw, I was seeing the museum as a culture mill, which is kind of obvious on one level if you think about these things. But other people, for other people, hopefully that's a bit of a surprise because I see a museum as, um, especially a regional museum, as collecting. Basically, raw materials from people's collections and objects of interest and then they put it through a certain process and really through the museum do turn those items into um, culture and history and so you, you could see the museum as a kind of mill for culture and I've spelt culture with a k here um For several reasons, Um, quite a few Wurundjeri words and language in that area have a lot of Ks and at one of the sites right in Lilydale, Booker Tillable has a double K Um, and also having spent a bit of time in uh, Germany and Norway recently um, and working with various cultural institutions, I've sort of come to like the the K in there as a C, it's sort of slightly subversive and um, just changes the feeling of that a bit.
0: Now, one of the things that fascinates me about your work is the way you make the invisible visible, um, uh, kind of turning wind, which is all around us, something we can feel but we can't see. Um, you create art out of that and you allow the wind to create the art through kind of your, your wind drawing machines and so forth. And this new work is a, an extension of that part of your practice.
6: Uh, yeah, that's right. Look, I, I have used um, used the wind as a dynamic force a lot in my work and created these well instruments for drawing i see them as in- instruments they're not they're certainly not automatic machines and you know i'm slightly lying awake at night just trying to work this one out it's very large and um quite a powerful turbine and it's a long-term project too and i'm we're looking at like you know at least 20 years uh and the way i'm building it's going to last for like 70 it's really or more it's all stainless steel and very strong um and so you know the, the the instrument. So it's not an automatic machine. Like I will have to um, be very careful setting this up with the right. You can imagine the right sort of gearing because you have the the wind can sort of be naught to infinity basically, as we all know. And um, making a like a permanent work that can respond to a gentle wind and not be destroyed in a hurricane or cyclonic winds which you do get or your or severe gales um you know up to force eight or nine on the beaufort scale there um it's quite a challenge and that's what i'm trying to do to make something that can basically transcribe some of this meteorological meteorological energy into an interesting sort of series of marks that will appear uh, that, that will be drawn on a large concrete wall you know and I've geared it right down so it's going to be slow and it'll do, you know, a couple of marks every day, hopefully, depending on the conditions. And so people can come back
0: over time and see if they come back a year later, two years later, again, five years later, and so, watching this artwork grow over time.
6: That that's that that's Yeah, that's the intention, yeah. And I, I'd, I'd like to be able to um, visit the museum and also have um, other helpers who can visit the museum and every now and then change the drawing implement um, for something else, for instance you know, how you often draw is start with some dark tones and then build up some lighter tones on top so there's um, various possibilities for that and well, I've noticed with some of these drawing machines that I create, uh, they do start to erase themselves after the pens and or the graphite in this case um, wears out, like you'll have uh, the wood or the metal kind of scraping against the wall and that will create a negative and then, you know, I want to build up something interesting. I've always loved artworks that really deal with this idea of time and um, sort of creating a sense of the work's own history and this is really doing it, it's really going to inscribe into the fabric of the building And so, what also intrigues me is, uh, as you say it
0: uh, it it draws into the fabric of the building, and then it can actually destroy its own self as well, destroy, uh, kind of wipe itself clean in some way. So again, it, it's um, you're making and unmaking simultaneously over over a, a, a long period of time.
6: Yeah, well, I'd really like to be able to do that. You know, uh, I think I think it's going to be interesting. You know, to control that in, in a way. As I just wanted to mention. I just saw this amazing artwork actually in um, in Venice in the um, Palazzo Palazzo Fortuny that was done by a, a middle aged uh, a monk from the Middle Ages in 1400 and something and it was a stone that was um, etched by a drip of water over a very long period of time and it was just a hollow in the stone created by one drip and I thought that was really interesting like a 500 year old object that had been inscribed by one drip of water and for me that embodied some of these. Uh, these thoughts and concepts I'm trying to, you know, work with.
0: Cameron why does the why does movement so fascinate you as well artistically because I mean the the kinetic element of your practice has been significant for a couple of decades now
6: yeah it really has you know, look it's very, it's interesting how that's developed and you know the, the more I've worked the more it's come to the fore and I remember when I studied at RMIT in the early 80s under Vincent Germanus and Inge King and some more modernist um, sculptors um, there, there was there was a bit of a movement against making kinetic work Works like, um, especially uh, Gemantis sort of felt that as a modernist, as a modern sculptor, you had to make all the decisions yourself. And if you if you made a kinetic work, it was still leaving things up to chance, or the audience might move something like you hadn't made the decision. But but the more I the more I um, I worked, the closer I got, I think, to my own uh, sensibility, which was really. Um, some sort of affinity with the dynamics of you know, the natural world, and uh, I love seeing things yeah, like erosion and um, the way the ocean and the weather worked. As a teenager, I did a lot of um, like surfing and working sort of with the weather, you know, on a day to day basis, and that was a that was kind of a formative experience. Um, but then, uh, as I you know studied more, I got into things like chaos theory that really studied things like the orbits of the planets and like how if you calculate. You know, tens of thousands of planetary orbits, you can dissect those orbits like a skein of wool, and you come up with incredibly interesting, you know, sort of patterns from something that's seemingly chaotic and unrepeatable so I started thinking well I could actually make a machine that would do some interesting drawings if I made it sort of doing a loop but the loop was unrepeatable so I could do that by using some flexibility within the machine Um, so I do that using the right sorts of wires and pulleys and um, uh, leaving some flexibility there so every time the pen comes around it's not doing the same mark and it's very much like a year on the earth like the moon pulls us around in a corkscrew. So every New Year's Eve, we're actually in a different spot. We're not in the same spot, you know. We're doing a spiral. So <clears throat> so this is very interesting. So that's come from chaos theory. And, you know, having spent some time in Tibet for a few months in between my undergrad and my postgrad, I was really taken by the way people would make metaphysical machines all the time for uh, as prayer wheels. And they'd make rotating machines everywhere, powered by water, wind... And like things like candle heat and stuff inside. And I was really fascinated by that going, yeah, well, it's like this metaphysical world is really what we're dealing with. Um, in art, that's that's what I find. Not all artists are into metaphysics, but for me, it sort of has the, that's how I can describe the power of art as a metaphysical force. And um, though I've sort of pulled all these things together, and that's I've ended up with movement and dyna- dynamism. If you
0: would like to see uh, Cameron Robbins' work, uh, it, when is it going to be installed? When is Milk Culture Milk Culture going to be installed?
6: Um, the, well, the opening is. Uh, scheduled for December, -December mid-December
0: 2015. Okay, and it's being installed uh, within uh, and outside and on the Yarra Ranges Regional Museum in Lilydale. So look for that in December. Um, And uh, you can find out more about Cameron and his practice at CameronRobbins.com It's been great having you on the show. Oh, thanks Richard. Three, triple R. It's time to talk cinema with Cerise Howard, one of the uh, Plato's Cave team from Monday evenings here on Triple R, and a long standing film reviewer on this here show. Long, long standing. How are you? I'm I'm still standing. Good, good. I I mean, MIF is the time for um, festival flus and other
7: things, as well as just general exhaustion from seeing film. But you're not one of those mad people who's going to see 60 or 70 films. Not quite that mad, no. Uh, Which isn't to say I hadn't managed to catch a cold in advance, in fact, of the festival. A nice exotic foreign one picked up at film festivals abroad. (laughs) Great. Thank you for sharing that with all of us. Really good to be ahead of the curve there, I find. Uh, And now I'm I'm merely slightly run down rather than absolutely fatigued and zombie-like. I'm chipper, in fact, even, and and have plenty of energy left for the still umpteen days left of Myth to come it is one of the longer film festivals, in fact, in the entire world uh, of, of this sort of stature, this international film festival. I don't mean to refer to, say, for example, the the Palace Chains film festivals here, whereby, you know, the French, German, etc., which run for two and a half, three weeks a piece. That's rather a different sort of kettle of uh, fish. Mm. Kettles. Kettles. Cinema. One, something. Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: so, uh, look, I've... Uh, because of various things going on in my life, Uh, have seen barely... Anything at MIF, although I will be correcting that from tomorrow uh, when I start to dive into the program more properly. Tomorrow night, I'm seeing Downriver, the new Australian film, uh, and doing a QA and a afterwards for about 15, 20 minutes in the cinema with its director. Mm-hmm. Um, then on Saturday night, I'm seeing Holding the Man for the second time because I caught a media preview of it earlier in the week um, and Sunday doing a, a big kind of panel discussion with uh, the uh, the director, the writer and the, the two lead stars. Um so I won't say too much about it because I, I don't want to do a formal review of the film yet. But uh, all I can say is I'm very, very glad that I had um, a, a packet of tissues in my mm-hmm. bag when I saw it because there was uh, it wasn't the 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 quiet sniffles and and weeping sounds in the cinema weren't just coming from me.
7: I know the source material there is very dear to your heart, so um, yeah, I it look is. forward to hearing more and seeing the film for myself. Yeah.
0: Um, but over to you. What, tell us what you've seen, what have, what have been your myth highlights to date?
7: Uh, well, actually, while, while we're in sort of literary land, I'll talk about a documentary concerning a, a controversial literary figure. Uh, I speak of the documentary The Cults of J.T. Leroy. We've very familiar at all with the whole JT Leroy affair?
0: I was, uh, and indeed uh, began reading uh, JT's work. Uh, I think I've still probably got a novel or two at home. Mm -hmm. These kind of um, uh, poor, white, trash, queer, transgressive fictions, which turned out to be much more fictional than
7: anyone knew. Yeah, it's it's such a story. I mean, firstly, there's... uh, well th- this film has to approach a whole lot of different matters here one of them being whether these works of fiction stand alone when removed from a particular context they were first placed in which is this whole suggestion that they were autobiographical works of well, obviously then non-fiction by somebody who was actually encouraged to write them as therapy uh, uh, as a teen what's more Uh, And thus uh, was a a whole welter of literary heavyweights in the US uh, brought on side to celebrate this extraordinary precocious talent. And we see various of these people rather more jaded many years later on talking to camera here about... Uh, feeling duped, cheated, and also clearly unsure how to reconcile their feelings about the actual literary worth of these books um, with uh, what they now know of the creator, or you could say creators, it's quite complex. But these books, um, I read Sarah many years ago, Uh, A Kindly Soul gave me a copy of that long, long back, and I thought it was wonderful. And I was aware that at the time, it was being pitched as something that was quite autobiographical. But I didn't invest too much in that. And when certain stories came to light in various um, still print media back then, especially about the identity or identities of J.T. Leroy, um, you know, I wasn't exactly crushed, but I gather many people have been, including Asia Argento, who d- adapted The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things for actually what I thought was a really terrific film. Uh, it's disturbing because I think it was very true to the source material. Uh, but as, as you say, Richard, this was, these were very transgressive works of fiction and they were sort of queer, but um, sort of queer by imposition upon the, the protagonists in that uh, the, the, the main character was sort of pimped out uh, at truck stops across the deep south of the US as a girl. A boy dressed as a girl, being being pimped out by his mother. Yeah, yeah. And there's, God, Asia Agenda, how much she invested in the the reality of JT Leroy's identity is a bit unclear even from this documentary, but she still threw herself mightily into that film and into the the role of the mother in that very uh, unflattering role. Uh, But this doco is is fascinating. Uh, For folks who aren't that aware of the the mythology surrounding JT, um, there there are so many different stories. As as we learn from this film, various people, literary figures as well as therapists, had all heard different things that were impossible to reconcile with one another. But variously, JT was a a teenage prostitute, addicted to heroin, uh, infected with HIV, uh, and encouraged to write his slash her life stories is, uh, by a therapist. There was other suggestions that JT's gender was variously either just fluid or actually uh, embarking upon transition lines from male to female. It was just a whole cluster of conflicting stories. And increasingly, JT had a public profile where celebrities would read from JT's books whilst this very androgynous figure would watch on. Uh, surrounded by a small coterie of intriguing hangers-on, including a a couple who may or may not have had rather more to do with the whole cultivation of this mythology than uh, first met the eye. And look, this is such an extraordinary story, you almost couldn't make a bad documentary about it because it is just uh, such a tangled web that was weaved. And uh, look, it really got me wanting to revisit the original works of um, what we now... No, more or less to be fiction, uh, because I found them really uh, fascinating at the time and really gripping and also very digestible in as much as that they're quite compact and you could pretty well polish them off in an evening because uh, they're real page turners, pot boilers, uh, especially if you have a, an affinity for the darker sides of life and, um, you know, have a little bit of that. So I think it's, it's a really terrific documentary from director Marjorie Sturm who herself was somebody... Who got drawn into this whole vortex and uh emerged at least many years later with the documentary, so something positive to come out of it, whereas there are some very embittered people yes. in this doco. Uh, author Dennis Cooper, for example. Who was one of the first people
0: to be approached by uh, the, the person claiming to be JT Leroy. Yeah. So, and by facts, I think, originally. Yes, I think that, um, that's right. Yeah. Kind of is, again, the, the way that technology can be used to create a fiction, yeah. um, which we now know, thanks to the internet, uh, is is anybody can, can be someone else online, but this example of using technology to, to create an identity uh, and approach authors and gain literary credibility through the representation of other established writers, which feels like like saying that out loud, that sounds like constructing deliberate fraud.
7: Uh, yeah. Well, also, just, yeah, these older school technologies, just even the telephone. Uh, JT, uh, one of the JTs, uh, endeared themselves to many of these writers over the phone, uh, lengthy phone conversations where at first they weren't sure whether they were speaking to, was it a boy? Was it a girl? Was it really a teenager? Uh, was this person who seemed quite inarticulate and, and incredibly shy? Uh, and including in person, when these people finally met, was this person really the person who wrote these uh, works of literature, which are so articulate, even though they are so uh, invested in a particular vernacular, that you could mi- mistake for inarticulacy? Oh, the levels, Richard. Um I think this is a really terrific documentary, actually, whether you know anything much about the work of JT Leroy or not. Which is the sign of a good documentary, that it makes a subject completely unfamiliar to you fascinating. In a way, it's going to... play into the hands of the there's especially one person who's most responsible for this whole phenomenon and uh, i i dare say book sales will increase again after this doco too especially as if it circulates as well as i think it should i, I would hope that this will be seen again after the festival but for folks who don't want to risk missing out it's on again uh, this evening at 9pm at uh, the
0: treasury theater and i believe there are still tickets available at the moment more info at myth.com.au
7: Actually, it just occurs to me the other film that I'd most like to talk about right now uh, is connected very much to literary matters too. And in fact, keys in with an interview you had at the start of today's show, Richard, with uh, director Brodie Higgs. Ah, the film Elixir. Yeah, I I saw this, it was just last night. And uh, because I've long been fascinated by the world of the surrealists and the dadaists and those particular... Uh, movements, Uh, when when I saw that an Australian had set uh, a film in contemporary Berlin, a place I'm also interested in, um, and populated it with various figures from those movements as well as the likes of Malcolm McLaren, I thought, well, I actually have to see that. This sounds like it's overreaching tremendously. I need to know whether um, something can uh, productively come of this extremely high concept. And I have to say, uh, yeah, yeah, I did. I, I really in, enjoyed this. It's, it, because, look, it, it, it is such a high concept, and all of these figures are from a, a, a time in art where you could still be extremely provocative, and, uh, and much of what is taken for granted today is, was the stuff of the avant-garde. You know, it's nearly 100 years ago, really. It's a long time ago, many, and, and quite a, a geographical remove. But uh, these various uh, heavyweights of those movements, whether it's Andre Breton, the uh, so called Pope of Surrealism, or uh, Tristan Sara, or um, uh, various other of the inner circle of the Surrealists before Breton typically and routinely expelled them, uh, seeing them all bundled together uh, in in modern day Berlin and still behaving, actually, uh, their acts seemed very, performances seemed very mannered, but it seems true to how I've often romanticise these people uh, who have very grandiose ideas of how much of a difference art can still make and and think um, nothing of uh, interrupting their peers' performances by way of uh, themselves uh, producing the sort of provocation and public interruption as as artworks in their own right. Something that we couldn't really stand for today, actually, Richard, and a Have we gone backwards or forwards in that we're more respectful these days of public art? Well, we've backwards or forwards, we've just gone sideways,
0: perhaps. Sideways or different, because I mean, you think about the, how respectful we are in the theatre now uh, at, a, at a performance of Shakespeare, for example, as opposed to back in Shakespeare's day when people had been shouting and throwing things and interacting.
7: Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, they, these folks, in fact, they're typically interrupting one another's as well. They're always having fallings out uh, of a, a magnificent and earth-shattering scale, and everything was so elevated, uh, heightened in significance, whether perceived by them or or not. I think the rest of the world just watched on in bemusement. A lot of the time all of these artists behaved abominably and incredibly egotistically. So putting all of that into a current-day Berlin setting and and letting uh, a little bit of commentary upon that sort of behaviour through the form of Malcolm McLaren, who was famous himself for commercialising this sort of behaviour and this sort of provocation, I think is really interesting. I can really see this film infuriating people who might walk into it expecting uh, some degree of naturalism or uh, or for these themes to somehow be teased out in a a, a way that they might find more directly relatable from their own um, uh, artistic circles they might operate in. This, This does feel all very anachronistic, and I found it very enjoyably so. And it's a really beautifully photographed. And uh, I know you were talking at some length, Brody, He was talking about the trouble they went to to furnish these environments. Actually, it is. They, they look wonderful. This place, allegedly uh, populated for 15 years by Breton and his crew, uh, it really seems like a real space and a space that I would love to inhabit myself. It's uh, quite utopian, for the likes of me at least, even if it's perhaps not is heated or uh, has all of the amenities one might like in uh, one's own home, so that's uh, Elixir uh, by Brody Higgs, which is
0: screening again this Friday, the 7th of August, 9pm at the keynote.
7: Yeah, most unusual new Australian slash German film. I mean, there'll be more myth talk when I join the Plato's Cave team on Monday night between 7 and 8, including doubtless talk of the film I'll be seeing next at Miff, The Pearl Button from Patricio Guzman, who whose previous film Nostalgia for the Light, I adored in its uh, cosmic look at, uh, well, where we all come from, uh, as well as uh, somehow offsetting that against the horrors of the Pinochet regime in Chile, which I think this film will be more of the same of, only different, and instead uh, head towards... What's going on at Cinema Nova from August the 6th? Is it not the 6th today, Richard? Is it the 6th? It is, it is the, indeed yeah. the 6th today, yes. Uh, running for just about a fortnight till the 19th, David Stratton's Great Britain Retro Film Festival. There is actually just the most extraordinary season of films there uh, running. I'm not quite sure why they thought it was a good idea to overlap to such an extent with MIF. I guess you need to have some competition, but still. But the, what What? A, 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 I, I think I have an answer. Do you? When festivals
0: are on, people are more likely to go out. So if you're already looking at the MIF Pro Program. Perhaps the film you've booked for you want to see is booked out. Mm-hmm. you think I still want to go and see a film. So thus you offer uh, a competing delight.
7: Yeah. Well, there are delights aplenty. There's as many as I think 19 uh, classic English films, uh, especially a whole bunch from the the Archers, as they were known, the the combination of directors Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, including such extraordinary big screen treats as The Red Shoes. Um, the Black Narcissus and what I'm most looking forward to, The Tales of Hoffman, uh, an opera adaptation for the big screen that will be introed here by Martin Scorsese, who has quite a, a fated history with this particular film. It's just about his favourite film of all time, which might seem a di- bit difficult to reconcile with all his hard-boiled gangster flicks. And uh, But it is one of the most sumptuous films you could ever hope to see, especially on a big screen, and will be introed by... Uh, Scorsese. uh So I myself will disappear from Miffin at least uh at least once to catch that on the big screen. Uh, also, Michael Powell, when he went solo, and this film actually disgraced him in England such that he was sent to the colonies in Australia to make there a weird mob and age of consent. Uh, Peeping Tom, you've seen Peeping Tom? i did I've not. It's oh. one
0: of those films that, those infamous films that you've I've heard about but not had a chance to see on the big screen.
7: Yeah, uh, very highly recommended. It's a horror film with a certain timelessness. Uh, it very much considers uh, what has become quite canonical film theory concerning the gaze and the complicity. Of the viewer in acts of murderous nastiness on the screen, uh, in which uh, in this film a filmmaker likes to. Try to capture the deaths on, on film of people he has been stalking. You can see how this might have upset the English establishment of the early 60s, uh, who were so used to these works of great quality of a more traditional sense, you could say, from Michael Powell. It's an absolutely astonishing film, as is Don't Look Now, from director Nicholas Rogue. Uh who I think must be represented at MIFF as well. Surely Walkabout is part of the David Gulpel retrospective at MIFF, it must be. It is. Yeah, so you could see Walkabout and Don't Look Now as two greatest films, I would say from the 70s, uh, on big screens in Melbourne at much the same time. Uh, you've seen Don't Look Now, Richard? I have. Yeah. And all the final scenes. Yeah. And some of the scenes leading up to that are rather magnificent as well. Um, an adaptation of a short story from Daphne du Maurier, uh, Donald Sutherland, and Julie Christie having a rather difficult time of it in Venice. And um, uh, what an extraordinary, chilling film. Um, look, The Third Man is in, in the mix. Uh, a masterpiece. Yeah. So it's interesting how many of actually of these are uh, English directed films um, and possibly shot in England are actually set elsewhere or shot elsewhere. Third Man is largely concerned with Vienna. Uh, Powell and Pressburg's Black Narcissus is allegedly in India, but it's all uh, the work of great artifice. Whether you detect that or not, you probably will. It's incredible set design. Uh, and look, there's just a, a Thirty Nine Steps as well. Uh, one of my favourite early Hitchcocks. <laughs> and a classic Ealing comedy in Kind Hearts and Coronets in which Alec Guinness plays, I think, as many as eight different roles, all of them being lined up to be murdered by the evils. but suave Dennis Price. So it's just a, a tremendous selection, and that's not even touching on 2001, A Space Odyssey, and so on and so forth. And that's me done, Richard. Um, exciting times, big screen-wise, in Melbourne town. So, we will catch you in a fortnight's time. In a week's time, I would say. A week's time, yes. yes. You'll be
0: back next week for another to, quick to kind of Yeah, It's time for me to go. Many thanks for the pleasure of your company this morning. I'll be back with you next Thursday.
6: This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.